Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17 tonight, or page 1009 in the Pew Bible. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. How do you handle the long race and the losses and crosses you endure as you follow Jesus? Do you get tired and discouraged? Do you grow suspicious of God's intentions? Ever want to just give up running the race for Jesus? The last few weeks we've been considering this truth. God disciplines those he loves. And last week in verses 5 through 11, we saw that his fatherly discipline is a privilege of sonship. And we are to endure hardship as discipline. God is treating us as sons, sons and daughters. He's for us and not against us. His purpose is our good, we saw, to make us like Jesus. And later, not necessarily immediately, but later, discipline produces a harvest of righteousness, of peace and righteousness for those who are trained by it. And the focus was not so much on how uh, it hurts in the present, but what it holds for the future. Here in verses 12 through 17, as a follow-up and in connection to that, The writer is anticipating the various problems uh, in the church and in our hearts by people as we respond to hardship. And he here exhorts us to be careful and to take care of others. Let me invite you to consider these words from Hebrews chapter 12 verses 12 through 17. This is the word of God. Therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears amen This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Lord and God, thank you for that promise um, that the faintly flickering candle you will not snuff out. Thank you for that promise that your word uh, gives uh, life, that it revives the soul, gives joy to the heart, makes wise the simple, that a bruised reed you will not break. Uh, Encourage us this evening, we pray, through your word. Be our teacher. Speak to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. About 7 p.m. on October 20th, 1968, 
a few thousand spectators in a stadium in Mexico City, an Olympic stadium, uh, were just beginning to file out as the last of the exhausted marathon runners were being carried off to first aid stations. They had been there when an hour earlier, an Ethiopian man had finished the marathon, 26.2 miles. And as the remaining spectators were preparing to leave, they heard the sounds of sirens and the police whistles. And so they all turned their eyes to the gate. A lone figure wearing the colors of Tanzania uh, entered the stadium. His name was John Stephen Akwari. He was the last man to finish. His legs were bloodied and bandaged, severely injured by a fall. He grimaced with each step as he hobbled around the track. The spectators rose and applauded him as if he were the winner. After crossing then the finish line, Aguari slowly walked off the field and he uh, was asked in light of his injuries and in light of having no chance of winning whatsoever a medal, someone asked him why he had not simply quit. And he replied, my country did not send me 7,000 miles to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Finishing the race is the important thing in the Christian life. The writer here expressed already his confidence at the end of chapter 10, verse 39, his confidence that genuine believers will finish When he said at the end of that chapter, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He was confident that these were believing people who would persevere. We can have confidence that the Lord will see us through because our confidence is not in our faith. It's in the Lord. And the Lord is the kind of God who sees us through, but that confidence doesn't mean we go to sleep at the side of the racetrack, that we just stop in the middle. We aren't spectators watching everybody else run by. We are participants in a race and called to run that race, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And in this race, it's not every man for himself, much like perhaps a marathon could seem anyway. Nobody can do the work for you. But here, his idea is that it's a kind of team sport. We're supposed to help each other finish. Did you catch that language? See to it that. See to it that. In other words, not just for yourself, but also as you gaze and look around at others. Uh, you're, you're not supposed to be aloof and disinterested in how they're doing. You, you simply can't say, someone else will see to it. No, he says to you, see to it. You can't say, somebody else will be interested in whether they finish or not. No, this is an every member ministry, he says to us. And we need one another to encourage one another, to be sympathetic towards one another, to give a good example to one another, to care for one another as we run this race. So we need to watch out not only for ourselves, but also watch out for one another. Now, there are a bunch of things that we're to do as we do that. And uh, we could pile up maybe a list of eight or nine things here. Let me gather them together in couplets and bring before you four couplets of things he says we are to do, to see to it. And here's the first. 
We are, verses 12 and 13, to help the weary and the wounded. Notice here, verse 12, some are weary. Therefore, he says, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3. It's, it's a passage which describes the highway of holiness and the character of those who walk on that highway. And it says, verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. He's actually picked up on that language. Weak hands and weak knees are a sign of weakness, exhaustion, even discouragement. The, the kind of desire to sort of just give up, right? Like a basketball player, maybe, near the end of the fourth quarter. They've played hard, but they've been banged up. They've taken hard fouls. They've been knocked to the floor time and again. They're sucking wind. And when they stand at the line to take their foul shots, they miss them both. And when they turn around, sometimes you can just see the chin drop. Their arms hang a little lower. They don't run up fast the court, and suddenly the other team is passing them up on the way to the basket. They've sort of... Well, they got weak hands, they got weak knees, and they're discouraged. And the other players need to encourage them. The coach may even have to call a timeout to encourage them. Why? Because, because we need help to see it through. And so do you see what this means? Around you today, in the Lord's church, may be people who are just ready to quit. Ready to give up fighting the good fight. And the Lord knows his people are discouraged by hardship. He knows his people may very well be discouraged in the process of discipline. Of being made more like their suffering Savior. And so the Lord means to love the weary by speaking a word to them. And he means for us to love the weary because he loves them. When others are suffering and discouraged, we may not know what to say. That's okay. Sometimes in discouragement, the best thing isn't words. Just to sit with them, put an arm around them, hug them, bring them a meal, clean their house, watch their kids, pray for them, say I love you and I'm sorry and I know this is hard. But they're weary. And not only are they weary, but they're wounded. Some are, or lame, and in danger of greater injury. Notice that's verse 13. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Make straight paths here is picked up from Proverbs chapter 4, verse 26. Make level the path for your feet. So again, he's picked up Old Testament Uh, instruction on pastoring people why make level paths well some are lame and off the path are rocks and ruts and roots and those are only going to make ankle and knee and hip injuries that much more worse you may need to be a crutch for these people a strong shoulder to help them walk softly and to walk on the straight path. They may be saying to themselves, I just can't take this anymore. 
I, I can't take it. Life is too hard or my family is too messed up. The world thinks I'm nuts for believing in Jesus and maybe I am. I just don't think I can go on. You may become for them the hands and the feet of the love of Christ in that situation. And they may be refreshed again through the grace and truth and love you show them. And they may just consider with new eyes the prosperity of the wicked and say again to themselves of the Lord in the language of Psalm 73, who have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You may just be the reason they can say that. We're to go on together. We're to help the weak and the wounded. But notice the second couplet here. We are to pursue harmony and holiness. Verse 14. Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. There's your harmony. Make every effort. Strive for it. Pursue it with passion. The word is used for the straining of the muscles of a horse in a race or the straining of the muscles of a hound in pursuit of a fox. You are to make every effort at this. Why is he saying it here? This is not unconnected. Because some of the hardships we're called to endure just may be the hardships of living closely in our home or in our church, certainly in our community, with sinners who disappointment, disappoint us. Uh, we may be overlooked by people. We may be around people who just don't get us. They may even scorn our faith. And the easy thing to do would be to be mean to them, to retaliate against them. As we confessed already in this service from Titus, to live hated by others and hating one another. That's easy to do. It's not straightforward and easy to live at peace with all men. It takes effort. It requires something of you to not just ignore people who trouble you to pursue people you might not be in harmony with to ask for forgiveness when you have offended them and that's the cause of the disharmony or to seek clarification where there's been misunderstanding or to overlook small things because love covers a multitude of sins it doesn't throw in your face every little thing or to confront those who hurt you for the sake of their good and your reconciliation as people, not just so you can point out how bad they've been, to be ready and willing to forgive their sin. I mean, these are hard things, and we have to be intentional about them. And the danger is that we abandon this quest to live at peace and in harmony, to simply give up on people and start cutting people off. Have you come into your family or your church with open arms in past days and embraced everyone, but as time goes on, you have discovered the little things that irritate you or frustrations with them not meeting your expectations for friendship or availability. Maybe they failed to show up when you needed them. Maybe they forgot to do something for you and you start cutting them off, pulling back, Pretty soon your arms are only open part way. 
And so over time, you chop down from 25 to 5 the number of people in the church that you engage with. Or you chop from 5 to 1 the number in your family you engage with. And you ignore the rest or you disdain the rest. This is how families and churches die. Don't let that happen, he says. Strive for peace with all. As Philip Hughes says, not merely so that we may enjoy a peaceful existence, but so that the blessing of God's peace may flow through us into their lives as well. Seek harmony. Also, holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 14. This is not an optional extra. You can't just decide for or against it, he says. Now, he's not saying you can live in perfect holiness. If you must pursue it, it's because you have not yet attained it. It is your aim. In our church membership vows, uh, to touch on this directly, I think, the third vow says, do you promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? In other words, is it your aim to live in such a way that you honor Jesus with your life? Do you aspire to that? We know you're going to fail at that. That's why we confess our sins and trust in our Savior. Those are our first two vows. I'm a sinner who needs grace. Jesus is my hope. We get that. But, but do you aspire to this? Are you aiming for this? And we know you need to rely upon the grace of the Holy Spirit for it. You can't do it on yourself. In humble reliance upon the grace of the Spirit, I will endeavor for this. And, uh, and what does that look like? Our fifth vow sort of gets at that. Do you promise to promote the peace and purity of the church? This isn't peace at all costs. It's not peace wherein we compromise the, the truths of the gospel. Uh, but, but we are aiming to seek both harmony with people and to pursue holiness. And here, look, he's not, he's not preaching holiness because by your personal holiness, you get into heaven as if you need to achieve a certain quantity to get there. He's not, he's not doing that. First Corinthians chapter one, verse 30, the apostle Paul tells us that in the gospel, uh, we have the, the holiness of Jesus, that Christ, he says, has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and holiness or and sanctification and redemption. He's all the righteousness and holiness and redemption that you need to be saved by God and right with God. So he's not here preaching suddenly after telling you all about what Jesus did for you for ten and a half chapters. Telling you, well, that's good, but you really need to rely on yourself moving forward. He's not preaching salvation by works, not preaching salvation by faith in Jesus plus your works or by God's grace plus your holiness. He is, though, saying this, that the whole reason God saves you is to bring you into his family as his own beloved. And then to make you like his own son in holiness. And God is holy and he will not fellowship with sin. And so what is God determined to do? 
He's determined to make you completely holy as he has already declared you to be in Jesus. He is, in other words, preparing you for the enjoyment of heaven. He's preparing you for the blessing of being in the place where all is good and there is no evil, where all is holy. And so we are to strive for that. We're to aim at that. It is both God's gracious activity, which cannot be accomplished apart from him. And it is something that we are to pursue out of gratitude. For the grace of Jesus. We're going to see him face to face folks. Do you want to be in his presence. And made like him. This is what we are to aspire to. We are to long for that day. When we will never again hurt. Those we love. We are to long for the day. When we will never leave. The God we love. We are to pursue holiness. Now the third thing, or fifth and sixth in in particulars, don't miss the grace of God or grow bitter. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. See to it again. Uh, See to it is a word uh, that's, comes from the word for bishop or elder in its noun form. There's, there are people who are called to be uh, overseers um, for the spiritual well-being of the congregation. And bishop or overseer is, uh, has also the title of elder. These two are the same. Here he's talking not so much about that person, but the task of looking out for the well-being of others. And here he's applying it to the whole congregation that we are to look out ourselves for one another. We are our brother's keeper. We are to seek those who have fallen back. We are to be concerned for and pursue those who have turned away. And we are to be interested in those who have not yet embraced or grasped the grace of God. And desire that for them. Aim at that for them. And so here he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Now what's he talking about? If, if grace is a gift God gives you, and it is, how can someone fail to attain it or grasp it or miss it? Well, because they're in the place where God is giving out the gift, but they aren't receiving the gift. They won't take it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain or to no purpose. How is his grace being communicated to us? Communicated to us? Grace isn't a substance. Grace isn't a package you unwrap. It's not some kind of physical element you eat or drink. Grace is relational. It's a relational category. It is God's relational favor on those who have demerited his favor. And we have it through the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we receive and rest on him for our salvation. God delivers the promise of that grace to us through means, through channels, through avenues. He uses his word of promise. To promise it to us. He uses the sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. As channels of this grace. So that as we sit under the word. Or have the water of baptism applied 
to us or reflect on the fact that we've had baptism applied to us or as we regularly come again and again to eat and to drink at the table. God is promising us grace in Jesus. He's saying to you, you need it and it's available. It's found in Jesus. Here I am. Receive in faith what I give. But there are people sitting under these means, hearing the word, perhaps having been baptized, coming even perhaps time and again to the table of the Lord, who are not receiving the reality promised because they aren't believing. And so it's become external for them, or it's all external for them. I heard, but it didn't mean anything. I ain't drank, nothing happened. His grace bounced off your back, out your ear. It never hit your heart. Maybe because all the while you thought to yourself, I don't really need grace. Or maybe you've become hard-hearted to grace through the very sufferings which you have experienced. And, and it may be here he's pointing you He's saying, don't miss, don't fail to grasp the grace of God to you because you have not experienced the worst thing there is. Maybe you haven't yet really seen Christ on a cross enduring the hell your sin justly deserves. Hell is what you really deserve. On the cross, Jesus went to hell for you, so to speak. Fail to see that, you'll miss the grace of God. Fail to see that, you might think God is treating you unfairly in the hardships of this life. If we miss the grace of God, says Alistair Begg, it is not because it is inaccessible to us, but because we have not availed ourselves of it. Don't miss this. And see that you don't grow bitter. End of verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, but also that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. The danger of missing the grace of God in Christ is that your heart will grow bitter. He he picks up on the language of Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18 and following, where the people are warned, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman, a clan or a tribe, whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of the nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Look, you may think that you deserve better from life, better from others, better from God. That the world hasn't treated you with the high life you think you deserve. Somebody hasn't bowed before your will. And gone along with your self-exaltation. God, maybe you think, has been unfair to you. And you're tempted to go find another God. Maybe you've endured some kind of 
trouble in this life. Well, trouble can't be avoided. But you haven't received that hardship as disciplinary from the Lord. If you aren't learning to endure it as discipline, saying to yourself, God is good. God is being good to me as my father. He is teaching me, instructing me, correcting me, and training me in righteousness because he's going to make me more like Jesus. And that's what I really want. But instead you resent it and you have nurtured those resentments. You have nursed them and they have grown in your heart and you have become bitter against the Lord. And he warns there's a danger here for the whole church if, if the church gives free reign to that bitter root because that bitter root is infectious. It's contagious. Some of you know I like to garden. Maybe that's too light a word. I love it. I like to mulch, mulch. That's how you say that word. My fall leaves and spread them out across the garden. They provide nourishment. The trees suck up all that great good mineral and then it plops it into my yard to be used as fertilizer for my garden. But we have a black walnut tree in our yard. And black walnut tree roots give out a poison. Likewise, the fruit and the leaves have some of it. That, that causes other things not to grow, that suppresses the growth of other good things. And I can't use those leaves in my compost. I've got to make sure those walnuts get thrown out of my yard. And I can't have that tree too close to the garden. It's toxic to life. And he's saying here, be very careful that a root of bitterness doesn't grow in your heart or that a root of bitterness doesn't become circulated in the church without being dealt with. The time to deal with this sin is early before those roots grow too deep, wind their way in and out of the cockles of your heart. And if you find that in yourself, it's not too early to repent. And if we find that in others, We should pray. We should aim not to imbibe the kind of cynicism and resentment that comes from that. And we should believe and proclaim the grace of the gospel that melts the heart of bitterness. That's the antidote here. Consider this testimony from one Christian dad. Bruce Goodrich was a young man who was being initiated into the cadet corps at Texas A&M University. And one night he was forced to run all night and he dropped and he never got up. He died before he ever entered college. A short time after the tragedy, Bruce's father wrote this letter to the administration, faculty, student body, and corps of cadets. Quote, I would like to take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy from Texas A&M University and the college community over the loss of our son, Bruce. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. I hope, he goes on, I hope it will be some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord 
and is now secure in his celestial home. When the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be, so that many will consider where they will spend eternity. You see how the grace of the gospel rescued a father's heart from bitterness, from nursing resentment. When others are bitter against the Lord and look like they're walking away like Esau did, and we'll get to him next, you may just be the best person because you know them and are trusted by them better than anyone else to throw your arm around them and call them back to Jesus and his church, to love them with gospel grace. Look out for one another. Don't miss grace or grow bitter. And finally, flee immorality and idolatry. Verses 16 and 17. See to it, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. The writer mentions Esau. He assumes that they know some of the story of Esau. He's already mentioned in chapter 11 the very positive examples of Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. And and the reverse has not been mentioned till here. Those who are in disgrace till here. Don't be like Esau, he says. Be like those men and women of faith, chapter 11, but not like this man of the world. He was who? He was the firstborn son of Isaac the older brother of Jacob. He had a right to a double portion of the blessing. He despised it and he sold it to his brother Jacob. And in selling it, he was turning his back on the spiritual promises of God with it. Why do I say that? What was his birthright? It concerned the future. And remember in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were looking forward in the future to what? To the heavenly city the better country, the new Jerusalem, the life of the world to come. That was Abraham's inheritance. This is what God offers us, and this is what Esau had held out to him along with other things. But he valued the infinite and unending blessing of God as worth less than a few bites of food. He compared a little bit of fragrant soup with chunks of meat in it with the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and he chose the bowl and his belly. And having turned away from God, what did he do? He began to give himself to the pleasures of this life in a way that God had not permitted. He speaks here of sexual immorality. Esau's likely is what it's referring to. It wasn't that sex was forbidden to him, but it was to be in marriage to one woman, and that one woman was to be a believing woman like should always happen among the people of God. But he took two wives, not one. And he took foreign women, not believing wives. He said to himself, I'm not going to follow God's plan for marriage. I'll do whatever I want with my sexuality. He gave up the worship of the creator to worship, we might say, the creature. He didn't want what the Lord had to offer his soul. But he definitely wanted what this world had to offer his body. And his bitterness led to rebellion. 
And that rebellion led to his repudiation of salvation. It led to him worshiping false gods. He was unholy. Verse 17, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. He was grieved, friends. He was grieved after the fact. But he wasn't grieved that he had offended God. He wasn't grieved that he had defiled marriage. He was grieved that he didn't get the blessing. So his wasn't true repentance. He wasn't the prodigal who turned back to the father and was sorry for his sin and offense against his father. But, but, he, but he was just a man who was sorry he didn't get more of the father's stuff. That he'd missed out on some of the goods. He wasn't sorry for his sin. He was sorry for the consequences of his sin. And the irony is is that in rejecting the Lord, he lost those blessings too. Those who value the Lord find they receive the Lord and every good thing thrown in. One day, that good includes not only the presence of our Father face to face and the enjoyment of relationship with Jesus face to face, but it includes freedom from pain and the enjoyment of eternal bliss. Here and now, however, God's good includes the discipline of enduring hardship that makes us more like Jesus. Esau didn't want any part of that God or any part of that discipline. And so he chose immorality and idolatry. And so the writer says, be concerned about your response amidst hardship and be concerned for others. Help the weary and wounded. Pursue harmony and holiness. Don't miss grace or grow bitter. Flee immorality and idolatry. And may he who always lives to intercede for us make it so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you know our hearts. You know our bent. You know our temptations and our troubles. You know all our failures in sin. You know how fickle we are and how prone to being stubborn and hard-hearted we are. And we would confess that and ask for forgiveness and ask for new hearts and changed hearts. And we ask that you would do the good work in us And give us grace uh, to pursue you and others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.